Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Real-Time Enterprise channel on Vantic TV, our video and podcast series of interviews with thought leaders and practitioners in digital transformation and the real-time enterprise. My name is Blaine Matthew, and I'm Chief Marketing and Product Officer at Vantic. Note that you can reach either myself or the guest by sending a note to realtime at vantic.com, and we will be more than happy to follow up. Joining me today is Rich Miranov, CEO and product management guru at Miranov Consulting. As a multi-time chief product officer myself, I have known Rich for many years and heeded his advice on many occasions. His Product Bytes newsletters are always full of good suggestions and best practices for product leaders and executives looking to take their software product management to the next level. And Rich literally wrote the book on the art of product management. So thanks for the time, Rich. We're going to have some fun. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. So tell us how you got to uh, where, where you are today. Before we talk a little more about Miranov Consulting, how did you get to be uh, you know, such an expert in the art and science of product management? I'd love to tell you it was a plan and you know, I had mapped out all the steps. Of course, it never works out that way. Um, uh, the very short version of this is I was at my third startup, I think, in 2001. Uh, wasn't really going at all well and I quit to take a little time off. It turned out that was September 1st of 2001. I took uh, out of the office to take a few weeks off. Anybody who remembers that month knows that the yeah. world changed a lot on September 11th. So on September 12th, it turned out I was a consultant because I had a mortgage on a house in Silicon Valley and a daughter who wanted to go to college and no income. And uh, that's pretty much the definition of a consultant. So I hung out my shingle to figure out what I could do and uh, really have been focusing on software product management up the stack since then. So that's uh, a, almost 18 years now of, of uh, mostly solo work. Very interesting. And so tell us more about uh, what Meredith Consulting actually does. What kind of engagements do you take and how do you help your clients? Sure. I'm almost exclusively focused at the head of product or VP product level. So the things I do here, I actually coach a fair number of VPs and heads of product. So that's a couple of hours a month of team psychiatry, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, what's really going on, mostly around organizational and, and people issues. Uh, companies bring me in sometimes to do assessments or help them design their software product management organizations. How many people, what the skills are, how do we divide the work, how do we get good value and real results instead of just people in seats. And then sometimes in the, in the Bay Area, San Francisco area, I will actually drop into a company as the temporary or interim head of product. So usually that's not a call anybody particularly wants to make because it means they've forgotten to have a head of product or that person left under complicated circumstances. Yes. Right. In other words, they fired them. Yeah. They fired them or, or that person quit or whatever. So usually that's a mix of actually turning around the product management team and also a lot of executive coaching or counseling or whatever it takes to figure out what's gone wrong at a, at a systemic level. So, you know, not for the faint of heart, yep. but fun for me. Yeah. Very interesting. And product management is, as we both know very well, is this domain that is so critical to the success of, of many businesses. And yet it's, it hasn't been that formalized. 
Right. right. And, and I find that university to become a product manager, at least I've never right. heard of that yet. No, I actually teach at a course in Dublin every year for a little bit where they, they have a full year course in this, but very rare to find it. And w what I see a lot is that particularly at startups, but even at larger companies, there may be nobody on the executive team who's seen good product management happen or worked with a really great head of product or senior product manager. So honestly, they don't know what good looks like. Uh, they're mostly working off of gut or, uh, you know, some two line job description somewhere about how product managers should or shouldn't be the CEOs of something. Um, and, and because they, product management's not as obvious as sales, we either hit the number or not. In engineering, we either shipped or not. It's a lot harder to put metrics on. So, you know, there's, you know, maybe half, 60% of the folks doing product work out there, I think aren't that good. And so it's not unusual to have a whole team of folks who don't know what they're supposed to be accomplishing. Yep, yep. Now product management can be applied to lots of different domains, even outside of technology. But I think a lot of what we're talking about here is software product management or digital product, you know, digital product management to some degree, is that, is that fair to say? That is, and, and I've mostly taken off of my client list folks who don't build software directly for money. So I know we'll come back to it later in the conversation, but I think it's really hard to introduce software as enablers in companies that are either deeply in the hardware business or deeply in the services business where it's really a cost and they're not used to doing what they're doing. It takes a lot of different point of view. So mostly these days I work with companies that are trying to monetize their software directly because it's way easier to connect the dots between we built something people really want to pay for and they're paying for it. Yeah, very. Well, that's very interesting because, you know, a lot of people have been talking about how, digital companies to, to you know, transform themselves or have to fundamentally become co data companies and even software companies. You know, some have seen Mark Andreessen from Andreessen Horowitz recently said, obviously, not, not even that recently, software is eating the world. Right. I believe that's true. Yeah. Um, but I, I believe... Nutella from Microsoft said every business will become a software business. And so are you, yeah, to talk a little bit more about that. Are sure. you seeing that companies just fundamentally need to em embrace this? And, but, but I think you're saying they need to think about it as, a, as core to their business, not as sort of an, an aside. Right. I think it's really hard. You know, if you've been running an airline for the last 20 or 30 years and you think mostly about fuel and gates and, and on-time arrivals and how much luggage goes into the hold and whether it's balanced left to right, front to back, uh, the idea that a piece of software could dramatically transform your business is alien. Uh, and software itself is really squishy, right? So, um, you know, if you were building an elevator, uh, most of your focus is going to be on the mechanics and the weight and the cost of building elevators and getting them installed. The idea that a piece of software might tr entirely transform the elevator business is one that I think most elevator manufacturers are going to miss even though we talk about it, even though it's in every HBR review, even though every, you know, every piece of business writing we have is about going digital, I see most traditional companies, instead of becoming software companies, um, they're going to fail to become software companies and we won't re remember their names anymore. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, I'll give you, a, give you a, a good example here, um, or two, two items out of banking, right, or out of finance. 
So um, I did some work, oh, it's gotta be seven years ago at a great, great little then startup company called Wealthfront, mm -hmm. which has automated the problem of investment portfolios. You can put your 401k money in there and their very, very smart algorithm will rebalance your portfolio every night and do all the tax loss harvesting and do all the things that humans find difficult at something like 1 16th of the cost that Merrill Lynch charges you for bad service, right? Um, but they wear nice suits and nice shoes and they have offices and you can go meet with them. But if you're in the millennial generation, honestly, those are points against, not points for. And so Wealthfront and its cohort of what they call robo-advisors, will, we will discover in 15 more years that they completely ate the investment market. But the Merrill Lynch's of the world, honestly, won't feel the pain for 10 more years because they're still trying to sell to 40 and 50 and 60 year olds who already have savings for retirement. And so they're missing the next wave of everybody who doesn't want to do it that way and overpay for bad service and product. Hmm. Right. So, so do I think that, that, you know, the bank institutions will come around? Some of them will, but you know, it, software is eating the world, or maybe we will bury them, bang our shoe on the table. Um, this is a slow moving process until it catches you and it's over. Yeah. But are you, you seem to be putting out a bit of a message of despair for legacy companies that are trying to become something as a service companies enabled by software, or am I misreading your... Well, your I, think, I think the point is that it's hard and that I see most, most of the digital transformation efforts that I, that I see or that I'm involved with don't work out well because they're trying to um, put some software icing onto some other major business instead of rethinking how real users want to interact in the world. Um, a, a positive example here, just to, to balance it out. So um, uh, I, I now have a credit card from Capital One, which is, you know, in my view, fine, but they did this really cool bit of software when I'm logged onto their site or I'm shopping on an e-commerce site, it pops up a little widget that lets me create a one-time virtual credit card number for a particular vendor. Hmm. Now that channels back somehow, so it ends up on my real credit card. But if I sign up with a vendor that wants to, to charge me a bunch of things every month and I can't cancel, I can go back to Capital One and delete that soft virtual credit card number and that vendor can't bill me anymore. Right hmm. now they're in the credit card business. They're in the finance business, but there's a piece of innovation that actually makes my life better because, you know, we've all been whack-a-mole with the vendor who I signed up for the, and the monthly subscription doesn't answer their phone, won't cancel. Right. Um, so, yeah. so that's value to me. And they've, they've thought through and talked to enough folks who really use credit cards that they figured out how to help me instead of just, you know, waving bonus miles yeah. in my face. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an example of a company that clearly isn't trying to become a software company, but has figured out how to use software to, enable, right. you know, a small part of their transformation. That's right. And, and where customer experience or user experience really matters, where crisp software really matters. Um, you know, we're now in a, in a situation where most folks under 30, either will try your software on your website or they'll move on, right? So the idea that you have a 60 or 90 or 550 day time to value that requires your customer to move mountains and, you know, invest treasury amounts um, yeah. is old. And 
folks who can't figure out how to do an online demo of their product will be gone. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's a, I think a very valid observation. So whether it's it's a company that's literally trying to become a software company or a trying that they're a company that's trying to use software as an enabler for their overall transformation, I presume you would agree they need effective product management to right. make that happen. Right. What is what has been some of the transformation you've seen over the last decade, maybe in terms of the practice of product management? I think it's come a long way, uh, last 10 or 15 years. Um, I think in parallel to the whole move to online and the cloud, which, you know, and I'm old enough to remember when we called it time sharing instead of cloud computing, because that was the 70s and the 80s. But, um, you know, we now see that the activities of my customers are measurable. We could track everything. We've got real stacks of data. We can roll software out you know, hourly or daily. So things move really quickly. Um, and I'm a huge, huge fan of everything having to do with validation and lean experiments and customer development. Um, you know, anybody who hasn't been through Teresa Torres's writings about how to really do experimentation is missing the boat, right? And so the idea can't be that we have this two and a half year migration you know, project thing for $10 million, it's got to be, you know, what can we do in the next seven business days that we can test and validate with real users, either in paper prototype or online and figure out whether we're right. And, and so deep humility tied with really good software product management tied with really great design and engineering. Because hmm. what, what else I see is I see um, in these digital transformations, a lot of intention, but an unwillingness to spend to hire the best designers, the best product managers, the best developers and engineers. And what you get, by the way, isn't very good, but you spent your money. And you know, digital makes this just so much more essential to get great seasoned talent. Um, the other thing I see too is I see um, on on the on the con side here on the warning is. It's really easy if you're fast and measurable and experimenting and do all this stuff and don't really have a strategy to optimize your way out of business. So I'm thinking, you know, uh, all those, the social gaming companies around 2010 mm -hmm. who, you know, they had these sort of hill climbing, follow the algorithm, maximize revenue of who's going to buy my virtual tractor from my virtual farm. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and what they did was they, um, they engineered themselves out of business because they engineered all the fun out of the games because every week they ratcheted it up. So you would be encouraged to put one more coin in. Right. Right. And one more friend on your social network and one more offensive thing. And they drove themselves out of business. Right. Likewise, um, if I think of the, the YouTube challenge where the YouTube algorithms are naturally pushing people toward more extreme content, right? You put your kids on there and they're watching some little games and the algorithms drive, you know, to outrage and to politics in a way that we just didn't anticipate because we don't have a strategy. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, yeah, absolutely. That's happening. And we see that across media, of course, and, and, right. and you know, and a lot of products right. these days as they become more intelligent, so to speak. And, that's right. And so I love that. I think intelligence is great and analytics are great and metrics are great. But if we don't put our human judgment in and make sure we're going to the right place, 
it inevitably takes us in some bizarre direction. Yeah. Now back to the practice of product management. One thing you didn't list when you were talking through some of the trends and changes, you didn't list specifically was the notion of adopting so-called agile right. practice versus waterfall. Is that just because it's, it's just so widespread and commonplace you don't even think about it anymore? Or where, yeah, where is that I, in your mind? I worked on some things that we now know to be agile in the 80s and early 90s. It wasn't that new. At Sybase, we had you know, automated test suites, I remember, in 1993. It wasn't new. Um, so, so I've been doing the Agile thing now for maybe 25 years, 20 years under the Agile banner. Um, I, I think it is really the only choice. You know, Waterfall never worked, even when we pretended it did. Every big project fails. Every big project is late, maybe in the, the square of the size of the project. Um, but I do see a lot of... Um, uh, word choice around agile rather than doing agile. I see folks pick up a scrum book and follow it wrote step by step and not understand that it's just an instance of how you might approach the stuff that, that the, um, the ceremonies have become important and the, the buzzwords and, and the one day certifications have become important instead of what agile is really about um, giving teams a mission freeing them to experiment, putting whole teams together with great designers and great engineers and great architects and great DevOps folks, um, getting out of their way. Um, the other thing I see crushing this always is I see agile development teams, and then I see executive teams that have the three-year waterfall demand model, right? right. They're gonna come down from the, from the mountaintop with 10 initiatives, each of which would consume our whole company, right? Uh, and the 10 are in conflict and there's just no way we're gonna do them, but they then throw five or 10 initiatives onto their development teams and expect those folks to both build great product and you know, retool, re-engineer everything at the same time. So, so we've got uh, a lot of waterfall executive model that just doesn't help. Well, that's right. Agile needs to be a company-wide practice. It's not just a product management or product development practice. Sure. Otherwise. And, 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 and there's still just so much focus on, did you deliver to me the thing you said you were going to deliver on September 30th? Because the roadmap says September 30th, instead of, did it deliver customer value, customer joy, reduced churn, um, you know, faster time to value? It's about, it's about the outcomes and everybody still focuses on the dates and the output. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you uh, you mentioned earlier about companies sub-optimizing by not having the best people in their product functions running product right. management. Uh, but of course, you know, CEOs are the best product managers, aren't they? Aren't they the ones who are best suited to really being the head of product management? Why, why hire a mini CEO to run your product when you have a real CEO who can be the product manager? And obviously, for those that don't know uh, what I'm riffing on, Rich wrote a very interesting article recently on the notion of CEOs are, are not the best product manager. So I'd love to hear you talk on that topic a little bit. Sure. And, and um, by the way, if, if I back up a step, uh, nobody on my product teams ever a second time tells me that they're the CEO of their product, right? Because <laughs> the first time I take them for a walk around the block and I explain about humility and that nobody works for them, and they have responsibility but no authority, and they lead by example, 
and they need to, you know, get the emotion and commitment and involvement and collaboration of all of their partners. Um, so they're not the CEO of anything. They don't get to fire anybody, right? The second time somebody on my team tells me that I promote them to some other job in the company outside the product management team, right? <laughs> so, so we don't, we don't put up with that BS in, in my department, but if we come back to CEOs, I think, um, particularly startup CEOs, it's natural that no startup has a product manager per se until they get to maybe between 12 and 20 employees. You don't have enough people, yeah. enough scope. You don't have a full-time product manager. And often the folks don't know what product management is anyway. And the CEO may have been a subject expert, but um, here, here's the, the sort of three points I try to make with CEOs to show them that they need to delegate to their product team the same way they delegate to their finance and sales and engineering and marketing teams, which is, um, you know, CEOs will tell me first, oh, I talk with a lot of customers and prospects all the time. I'm the CEO. And I agree. And then we unpack that and we realize that most of the time when the CEO is talking to a customer or prospect, it's either because the sales team escalated the need for a sales call, right? Or the customer has something burning fire and it's a dumpster fire and it's all broken, right? What that means, first of all, if I'm the CEO on the phone with a sales prospect, I never am deeply probing for needs, right? I'm trying to close. I've got my script. I know their issues. I'm trying to get them across the line to yes, tell them how great my company is, right? So sales calls on average are lousy places to figure out what customers want. They're great places to get the customer to agree to your proposition, right? And, and you know, uh, again, I get pushback from every CEO on this. And so my follow-up question is, when was the last time, Mr. or Ms. CEO, you were on the phone with a prospect and you listened for 20 minutes without interrupting other than for clarification, right? Yep. And the answer is, well, <laughs> um, uh, not so recently, right? Yeah. Because when we're in sales mode, which is what CEOs are mostly asked to do, we're pitching, we're thinking of the answers, we're, we're responding to their issues, we're telling them why it's not a problem. We're cutting them off from telling us what their real issues are so we can get to close, right? And so, and, and that's a really, 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 really important job of the CEO, mm -hmm. but it's not product management and it's not user understanding and it's not deep dive and it's not unpack the problems from the, from the symptoms. Um, what CEOs do when, a, when an angry customer gets off the phone, having said, I need you to add this report to your product, the CEO writes a post-it or an email or a Slack or a Jira ticket that says, add this report to the product, right? Yeah. Not, is it the right thing? Not, did we have five other ways to answer the need? Not, did the customer misunderstand their problem, right? So CEOs become transmitters of individual requests. Yeah. What they're not anymore is broad perceivers of the market. They have deep, deep recency bias. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're right, and they're not understanding the overall prioritization right. of all the other things that are on the, on the back. Right. Now, some of them are, and some of them are brilliant, and they may in fact be ex-product people who know how to do this well. But on, on average, 
what I ask CEOs to do is to provide the same delegation and trust to their product team to figure out what the market really wants as they do to their engineering team to figure out how to build stuff and their sales team to close sales and their HR team to set, you know, employee policies. Um, when I see CEOs yeah, writing out. Uh, there's a difference there. Shouldn't. Yeah. Go. Go ahead. I was going to say, shouldn't the CEO know though what the market really needs? Like I, I, I get that when they're in sales mode, they're not doing a good job of that, but sure. it, it is sort of, isn't it uh, discouraging if the CEO has never spent 20 minutes listening to what the market really well, I, I think CEOs do know what the market wants in general. I think the direction we get down to product tends to be not general, but very specific about individual features and functions. So every CEO should know that everything is moving to the cloud at some rate, depending on your market, right? But I, but I would rather the CEO pound on the product and engineering and marketing folks to figure out how we're going to move to the cloud in the right steps than to write down which products need to be cloud enabled first, hmm. right? So it's a scope yeah. question. Um, I think the, you know, the CEOs are the best judges of whether we have the right strategies and they may or may not have been the strategist, but they're poor judges of the trade-off between any particular feature and everything we've already crammed into the roadmap and promised. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I, a, a short version of a long rant of mine, CEOs and salespeople live in the and universe where yes, we're going to get everything on a roadmap that's been promised. And I need this one little small thing that can't be that hard. It's probably only 10 lines of code. Right. Um, and, and we do this every week or every couple of days. And there's one more, and there's one more, I forgot about the last one. And I love them for it because it's their job, but the engineering and product folks live in the, exclusive or universe where if we're going to put that new thing in the plan, which is already over crammed with too many things, right? We have to take something else out and CEOs hate this discussion because they want there to be bountiful, you know, endless resources. And the answer is there's never, ever, ever as much as we want on the engineering and product side. And so we must make, exclusive or decisions, even though we all hate it. Amen. Now, Amen. again, not everybody can hear it. Not everybody can do it, but we must trust our product folks to come back with hard choices and we may lean in and make the hard choice for them, but telling them to do more and get more done sooner turns out not to be a very useful strategy. Hmm. How can product folks earn the trust of CEOs or, or business unit leaders or the business side though? Cause it's easy to say CEOs should give them the trust, but they have yeah. to earn that trust. They have to earn it. And it's easy to lose that trust. So um, two or three things I'm always coaching my heads of product to coach their product folks to do. One is um, we need to attach real business outcomes to the pieces of work. If we're going to completely rebuild the customer experience for this insurance product, we better have some prediction about how many more insurance policies we're going to sell and we better hold ourselves to it because when it runs late, and by the way, all projects run late, right? If we have an attached real business value of reduced churn or faster customer onboarding or a better cross sell, then our executives should cancel those projects or never approve them, right? We have to talk in, business outcome terms. And then when things run late, 
as they always do, we have to present our executive teams with rational sets of choices. We don't go cry and say it's late. What we do is we say, this is late and it's more important than another thing. So I recommend we postpone the other thing to finish this even though it's late. Or maybe we say, you know, it's late and we're gonna drop some features because enough of the customers can use what's already built. So we're gonna ship on time, but this particular segment or use case is gonna be disappointed. Yeah. And ideally it's the one with less revenue attached. Yeah. Right? Because going and crying about how something didn't turn out the way we wanted is not a way to build trust with executives. We have to treat them like adults, right? You know, do you want the surgery or not? Here's the drawbacks. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Hard to do because executives want things to go well and sometimes they do. And product managers want everybody to understand what we do and nobody cares. Right. Yeah. It's not important. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, this, I think any business leader listening to this, and of course the vast majority of people listening to this will not be product managers and well, probably won't know a lot about product well, managers. Well, that shows they're smart, you know? I mean, uh, <laughs> I, tell, I tell people that really smart folks do product management for five or six years, and then they move into some other role. And that's only important because I've been doing product management for 30 years. So reach your own conclusions. There you go. There you go. Well, this, this has been really great. So usually uh, toward the end, I give my guests a chance to call BS on some right. aspect of conventional wisdom. Uh, you've, already, you've called BS on a bunch of things already, I think, through this conversation. But do you have any, anything else to sure. lay on us? Uh, just a couple of things. One is um, every CEO I talk to tells me that engineering is not productive enough. Yep. Right. And almost every time I open that box, I find that they might be wanting to be more productive, but that's not the issue. Either we're building lots of the wrong things or we're cramming twice as much into the plan as we'll ever finish. So we're going to be disappointed or we don't have a segmentation strategy or our pricing's broken or our internal processes are so bad that we can't get a part number approved in six months. Right. So, so the easy answer of, engineering just needs to work nights and weekends is in my view, almost never useful and almost never right. Um, and the back half of that, by the way, back to the previous discussion, I always hear sales um, uh, CEOs tell me that the sales teams know what customers want. And I instead, especially in enterprise zone, what I see is that the sales teams know what customers tell them they want. And then they deeply filter that because no, no salesperson ever says, I lost the deal for bad salesmanship. Right. Right. We always hear that the price is too high and we're missing a few hundred features. Um, so I'm always encouraging uh, CEOs to get an outside third party to do win-loss analysis, mm -hmm. to find out what customers really think, because what bubbles up through the, the sales side of, uh, of account reviews is deeply filtered and usually slanted. And I can tell you what it is before I got there. Yep. Yep. So uh, those are the, those are my two BS items. Hmm. Yep. Those are good ones. I've, I've felt them. I, I feel them or I've felt them in the past. So any uh, technology or business predictions for 2019 wow. or the year ahead, any, you okay. know, and in the domains that we've been talking about sure. or in any domain. In any domain. Um, I think, uh, by the way, I've been working on AI since uh, the late seventies. 
Um, finally, when, finally, when, you're getting to some value here. That's right. We're really, so, so I think we're finally going to stop talking about AI because it's going to work, in which case it doesn't need a name. We'll call it machine learning. We'll call it whatever, but it'll just be how we get work done. Um, yep. and, and so that's on the positive. I think this is the year when um, I think we're going to see a huge continued backlash against Facebook and other social media for enabling all of the things that we didn't really expect to happen except you know, the folks who expected it to happen um, around, you know, uh, you know, destructive behavior and post-truth society right. and everybody dressing up their Facebook feeds to impress people instead of being true. I, I think maybe this is the year we, we see that for how constructive it isn't. Yep. I think those are pretty spot on predictions. We'll check back in a year. I, Good. Think, you're, I think you're going to be right about those. So to wrap it up, any final takeaways or tips for business leaders that are trying to figure out how to more effectively use product management as a way to sure. transform their business? Um, I think uh, particularly around digital transformations, uh, you know, if, if, if I put my leader hat on and say, how do I push for good outcomes and good results through my product management engineering team? But in general, so one, one of the two for me is every time somebody proposes a really big project, I want to come back and ask what we could do in three weeks or six weeks that's really small, that shows measurable improvement, that proves out a theory, and if it's wrong, we didn't waste a lot of time and money. Every wow. time somebody wants an 18-month greenfield restructuring of some application, I think it's a mistake. Um, and likewise, uh, when I'm sitting with my product and engineering and digital teams, I think we, we want to first ask the question of what did we learn last week? before we ask the question of when am I going to get a particular deliverable? Yep. Because if what we learned last week was that deliverable is going to be of little value, right? Then it lets us ask the correct follow-on question, which is why are we still working on that thing? Shouldn't we cancel it for, for a better choice, right? That, that the whole agility thing is about business thinking and business choices in the three to six to eight week phase. And if you can't get something good out of eight weeks, I would go back and chop it smaller. Absolutely. That is right on advice. I see that over and over and over again. Digital transformation is, is such a big concept right. that people think way too big. We're going to boil the ocean. We're going to make every one of our users love us with a perfect user interface. We're going to use telepathy and AI to speed this along, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, those are 10-year projects that are going to fail. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Well, Good. thank you. That's right on, Rich. And I think that wraps it. So thanks so much for joining us today on Vantage. My pleasure. Great conversation. I knew it would be based on all our past uh, conversations. And those interested in hearing more of Rich's insights should follow him on Twitter at Rich Miranov. You can, and also check out his website and blog at miranov.com. And of course, search for his book, The Art of on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. And you can reach out to me anytime at realtime advantic.com. Thanks, Rich. Great. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. If you would like to subscribe to the podcast version of The Real-Time Enterprise, search for The Real-Time Enterprise on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you are already listening to the podcast version of The Real-Time Enterprise, please leave a rating or comment and let us know how you are enjoying the show.